Section 16 of Vice Versa by F. Anstey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Ockenick. Vice Versa by F. Ansey. Chapter 15. The Rubicon. My three schoolfellows, whom I will trust, as I will adders fanged, they bear the mandate. Paul never quite knew how the remainder of that day passed at Crichton House. He was ordered to join a class which was more or less engaged with some kind of work. He had a hazy idea that it was Latin, though it may have been Greek, but he was spared the necessity of taking any active part in the proceedings, as Mr. Blinkhorn was not disposed to be too exacting with a boy who in one short morning had endured a sentence of expulsion, a lecture, the immediate prospect of a flogging, and a paternal visit, and as before mercifully left him alone. His classmates, however, did not show the same chivalrous delicacy, and Paul had to suffer many unmannerly jests and jibes at his expense, frequent and anxious inquiries as to the exact nature of his treatment in the dining-room, with sundry highly imaginative versions of the same, while there was much candid and unbiased comment on the appearance and conduct of himself and his son. But he bore it unprotesting, or, rather, he scarcely noticed it, for all his thoughts were now entirely taken up by one important subject, the time and manner of his escape. Thanks to Dick's thoughtless liberality, he now had ample funds to carry him safely home. It was hardly likely that any more unexpected claims could be brought against him now, particularly as he had no intention of publishing his return to solvency. He might reasonably consider himself in a position to make his escape at the very first favorable opportunity. When would that opportunity present itself? It must come soon. He could not wait long for it. Any hour might yet see him pounced upon and flogged heartily for some utterly unknown and unsuspected transgression. Or the golden key which would unlock his prison bars might be lost in some unlucky moment, for his long series of reverses had made him loth to trust to fortune, even when she seemed to look smilingly once more upon him. Fortune's countenance is apt to be so alarmingly mobile with some unfortunates. But in spite of the new facilities given him for escape, and his strong motives for taking advantage of them, he soon found to his utter dismay that he shrank from committing himself to so daring and dangerous a course, just as much as when he had tried to make a confidant of the doctor. For, after all, could he be sure of himself? Would his ill luck suffer him to seize the one propitious moment, or would that fatal self-distrust and doubt that had paralyzed him for the past week seize him again just at the crisis? Suppose he did venture to take the first irrevocable step, could he rely on himself to go through the rest of his hazardous enterprise? Was he cool and wary enough? He dared not expect an uninterrupted run. Had he ruses and expedients at command on any sudden check? If he could not answer all these doubts favorably, was it not sheer madness to take to flight at all? 
he felt the dismal conviction that his success would have to depend not on his own cunning but on the forbearance or blindness of others the slightest contretemps must infallibly upset him altogether the fact was he had all his life been engaged in the less eventful and contentious branches of commerce his will had seldom had to come in contact with others and when it did so he had found means being of a prudent and cautious temperament of avoiding disagreeable personal consequences by timely compromises or judicious employment of delegates he had generally found his fellow-men ready to meet him reasonably as an equal or a superior but now he must be prepared to see everyone he met a possible enemy who would hand him over to the tyrant on the faintest suspicion they were spies to be baffled or disarmed pursuers to be eluded the smallest slip in his account of himself would be enough to undo him no wonder that as he thought over all this his heart quailed within him they say the paradox mongers say that it requires a far higher degree of moral courage for a soldier in action to leave the ranks under fire and seek a less distinguished position towards the rear than would carry him on with the rest to charge a battery this may be true though it might not prove a very valuable defence at a court-martial but at all events mr bultitude found when it came to the point that it was almost impossible for him to screw up his courage to run away it is not a pleasant state this indecision whether to stay passively and risk the worst or avoid it by flight and the worst of it is that whatever course is eventually forced upon us it finds us equally unprepared and more liable from such indecision to bungle miserably in the sequel paul might never have gained heart to venture but for an unpleasant incident that took place during dinner and a discovery he made after it they happened to have a particularly unpopular pudding that day a pallid preparation of suet with an infrequent current or two embalmed in it and paul was staring at his portion of this delicacy disconsolately enough wondering how he should contrive to consume and worse still digest it when his attention was caught by jolland who sat directly opposite him that young gentleman who evidently shared the general prejudice against the currant pudding was inviting mr bultitude's attention to a little contrivance of his own for getting rid of it which consisted in delicately shoveling the greater part of what was on his plate into a large envelope held below the table to receive it this struck paul as a heaven-sent method of avoiding the difficulty and he had just got the envelope which had held barbara's letter out of his pocket intending to follow jolland's example when the doctor's voice made him start guiltily and replace the envelope in his pocket jolland said the doctor what have you got there an envelope sir explained jolland who had now got the remains of his pudding safely bestowed what is in that envelope said the doctor who happened to have been watching him in the envelope sir pudding sir said jolland as if it were the most natural thing in the world to send bulky portions of pudding by post and why did you place pudding in the envelope inquired the doctor in his deepest tone 
Jolland felt a difficulty in explaining that he had done so because he wished to avoid eating it, and with a view to interring it later on in the playground, he preferred silence. "'Shall I tell you why you did it, sir?' thundered the doctor. "'You did it because you were scheming to obtain a second portion, because you did not feel yourself able to eat both portions at your leisure here, and thought to put by a part to devour in secret at a future time. It's a most painful exhibition of pure piggishness. There shall be no pocketing at this table, sir. You will eat that pudding under my eye at once, and you will stay in and write out French verbs for two days. That will put an end to any more gorging in the garden for a time, at least. Jolland seemed stupefied, though relieved, by the unexpected construction put upon his conduct. As he gulped down the intercepted fragments of pudding, while the rest diligently cleared their plates, with as much show of appreciation as they could muster. Mr. Bultitude shuddered at this one more narrow escape. If he had been detected, as he must have been in another instant, in smuggling pudding in an envelope, he might have incautiously betrayed his real motives, and then, as the doctor was morbidly sensitive concerning all complaints of the fare he provided, he would have got into worse trouble than the unfortunate Jolland, to say nothing of the humiliation of being detected in such an act. It was a solemn warning to him of the dangers he was exposed to hourly while he lingered within those walls, but his position was still more strongly brought home to him by the terrible discovery he made shortly afterwards. He was alone in the schoolroom, for the others had all gone down into the playground, except Jolland, who was confined in one of the classrooms below when the thought came over him to test the truth of Dick's hint about a name cut on the doctor's writing-table. He stole up to it guiltily, and lifting the slanting desk which stood there, examined the surface below. Dick had been perfectly correct. There it was, glaringly fresh and distinct, not large, but very deeply cut and fearfully legible. R. Bultitude. It might have been done that day. Dick had probably performed it out of bravado, or under the impression that he was not going to return after the holidays. Paul dropped the desk over the fatal letters with a shudder. The slightest accidental shifting of it must disclose them. Nothing but a miracle could have kept them concealed so long. When they did come to light, he knew from what he had seen of the doctor that the act would be considered as an outrage of the blackest and most desperate kind he would most unquestionably get a flogging for it. He fetched a large pewter ink-pot, and tried nervously to blacken the letters with the tip of a quill, to make them, if possible, rather less obtrusive than they were. All in vain. They only stood out with more startling vividness when picked out in black upon the brown-stained deal. He felt very like a conscious-stricken murderer trying to hide a corpse that wouldn't be buried. He gave it up at last, having only made a terrible mess with the ink. That settled it. He must fly. The flogging must be avoided at all hazards. If an opportunity delayed its coming, why, he must do without the opportunity. He must make one. For good or ill, his mind was made up now for immediate flight. All that afternoon, while he sat trying to keep his mind upon long sums in bills of parcels, 
which disgusted him as a businessman by the glaring improbability of their details, his eye wandered furtively down the long tables to where the doctor sat at the head of the class. Every chance movement of the principal's elbow filled him with a sickening dread. A hundred times did those rudely carved letters seem about to start forth and denounce him. It was a disquieting afternoon for Paul. But the time dragged wearily on, and still the desk loyally kept its secret. The dusk drew on and the gas burners were lit. The younger boys came up from the lower classroom and were sent out to play. The doctor shortly afterwards dismissed his own class to follow them, and Paul and his companions had the room to themselves. He sat there on the rough form with his slate before him, hearing half-consciously the shouts, laughter, and ring of feet coming up from the darkness outside, and the faint notes of a piano, which filtered through the double doors from one of the rooms where a boy was practicing Hayden's Surprise from Hamilton's exercise book, a surprise which he rendered as a mildly interjectional form of astonishment. All the time Paul was racked with an intense burning desire to get up and run for it then, before it became too late. But cold fits of doubt and fear preserved him from such lunacy. He would wait. His chance might come before long. His patience was rewarded. The doctor came in, looking at his watch, and said, "'I think these boys have had enough of it, Mr. Tinkler, eh? You can send them out now till tea-time.' Mr. Tinkler, who had been entangling himself frightfully in intricate calculations upon the blackboard without making a single convert, was only too glad to take advantage of the suggestion, and Paul followed the rest into the playground with a sense of relief. The usual chevy was going on there, with more spirit than usual, perhaps, because the darkness allowed of practical jokes and surprises and offered great facilities for paying off old grudges with secrecy and dispatch. And as the doctor had come to the door of the greenhouse and was looking on, the players exerted themselves still more, till the prison to which most of one side had been consigned by being run down and touched by their fleeter enemies was filled with a long line of captives holding hands and calling out to be released. Paul, who had run out vaguely from his base, was promptly pursued and made prisoner by an unnecessarily vigorous thump in the back, after which he took his place at the bottom of the line of imprisoned ones. But the enemy's spirit began to slacken. One after another of the players, still left to the opposite side, succeeded in outrunning pursuit and touching the foremost prisoner for the time being, so as to set him free by the rules of the game. The doctor went in again, and the enemy relapsed, as usual, into total indifference, so that Paul, without exactly knowing how, soon found himself the only one left in jail, unnoticed, and apparently forgotten. He could not see anything through the darkness, but he heard the voices of the boys disputing at the other side of the playground. He looked round. At his right was the indistinct form of a large laurel bush, Behind that, he knew, was the playground gate. Could it be that his chance had come at last? He slipped behind the laurel and waited, holding his breath. The dispute still went on. No one seemed to have noticed him. Probably the darkness prevented all chance of that. He went on tiptoe to the gate 
it was not locked. He opened it very carefully a little way. It was forbearing enough not to creak, and the next moment he was outside, free to go where he would. Escape, after all, was simple enough when he came to try it. He could hardly believe at first that he was really free at last, free with money enough in his pocket to take him home, with the friendly darkness to cover his retreat, free to go back and confront Dick on his own ground, and, by force or fraud, get the Garuda stone into his own hands once more. As yet he never doubted that it would be easy enough to convince his household, if necessary, of the truth of his story, and enlist them one and all on his side. All that he required, he thought, was caution. He must reach the house unobserved, and wait and watch, and the deuce would be in it if the stone were not safe in his pocket again before twelve hours had gone by. All this time he was still within a hundred yards or so of the playground wall. He must decide upon some particular route, some definite method of ordering his flight. To stay where he was any longer would clearly be unwise, yet where should he go first? If he went to the station at once, how could he tell that he should be lucky enough to catch a train without having to wait long for it, and unless he did that, he would almost certainly be sought for first on the station platform, and might be caught before a train was due? At last, with an astuteness he had not suspected himself of possessing, which was probably the result of the harrowing experiences he had lately undergone, he hit upon a plan of action. I'll go to a shop, he thought, and change this sovereign, and ask to look at a timetable. Then, if I find I can catch a train at once, I'll run for it. If one's not due for some time, I can hang about near the station till it comes in. With this intention, he walked on towards the town till he came to a small terrace of shops, when he went into the first, which was a stationer's and toy dealer's, with a stock in trade of cheap wooden toys and incomprehensible games, drawing slates, penny packets of stationery, and cards of pen and pencil holders, and a particularly stuffy atmosphere. The proprietor, a short man with a fat white face with a rich glaze all over it, and a fringe of ragged brown whisker meeting under his chin, was sitting behind the counter, posting up his ledger. Paul looked round the shop in search of something to purchase, and at last said, more nervously than he expected to do, I want a pencil case, one which screws up and down. He thought a pencil case would be an innocent, unsuspicious thing to ask for. The man set rows of cards containing pencil cases of every imaginable shape on the counter before him, and when Mr. Bolditude had chosen and paid for one, the stationer asked if there would be anything else, and if he might send it for him. "'You're one of Dr. Grimstone's young gentlemen up at the Crichton House, aren't you, sir?' he added. A guilty dread of discovery made Paul anxious to deny this at once. "'No,' he said. "'Oh, no!' no connection with the place. Uh, could you allow me to look at a timetable? Certainly, sir. Expecting someone tonight or tomorrow, perhaps? Let me see, he said, consulting a table which hung behind him. There's a train from Pancras comes in half an hour from now. Six-five, that is. There's another due at eight-fifteen, and one at nine-thirty. 
Then from Liverpool Street they run... Thank you, said Mr. Bultitude, but but I want the up trains. Ah, said the man, with a rather peculiar intonation. I thought maybe your pa or ma was coming down. Ain't Dr. Grimstone got the time the trains go? Yes, said Paul desperately, without very well knowing what he said. Yes, he has, but uh, not for this month. He, he sent me to inquire. Did he, though? said the stationer. I thought you wasn't one of his young gentlemen. Mr. Bultitude saw what a fearful trap he had fallen into, and stood speechless. Go along with you, said the little stationer at last, with a not unkindly grin. Lord bless you, I knew your face the minute you come in. To go and tell me a brazen story like that. You're a young pickle, you are. Mr. Bultitude began to shuffle feebly towards the door. Pickle, eh? he protested in great discomposure. No, no, heaven knows I'm no pickle. It's of no consequence about those trains. Don't trouble. Good evening to you. Stop, said the man. Don't be in such a hurry now. You tell me what you want to know straightforward, and I don't mean to say as I won't help you so far as I can. Don't be afraid of my telling no tales. I've been a schoolboy myself in my time, bless your art. I shouldn't wonder now if I couldn't make a pretty good guess without telling at what you're after. You've been a catchin' of it hot, and you want to make a clean bolt of it. I ain't very far off now, am I? No, said Paul, for something in the man's manner inspired confidence. I do want to make a bolt of it. I've been most abominably treated. Well, look here, I ain't got no right to interfere. And if you're caught, I look to you not to bring my name in. I don't want to get into trouble up at Crichton House and lose good customers, you see. But I like the looks of you, and you've always dealt there pretty regular. I don't mind if I give you a lift. Just see here. You want to get off to London, don't you? What for is your business, not mine. Well, there's a train, express, stops at only one station on the way, in at 550. It's twenty minutes to six now. If you take that road just opposite, it'll bring you out at the end of the station road. You can do it easy in ten minutes and have time to spare. So cut away, and good luck to you. I'm vastly obliged to you, said Paul, and he meant it. It was a new experience to find anyone offering him assistance. He left the close little shop, crossed the road, and started off in the direction indicated to him at a brisk trot. His steps rang out cheerfully on the path, iron-bound with frost. He was almost happy again under the exhilarating glow of unusual exercise and the excitement of escape and regained freedom. He ran on past a series of villa residences enclosed in varnished palings and adorned with that medieval abundance of turrets, balconies, and cheap stained glass which is accepted nowadays as a guarantee of the tenant's culture, and a satisfactory substitute for effective drainage. After the villas came a church, and a few yards farther on the road turned with a sharp curve into the main thoroughfare leading to the station. He was so near it that he could hear the shrill engine whistles 
and the banging of trucks on the railway sidings echoed sharply from the neighboring houses. He was saved, in sight of haven at last. Full of delight at the thought, he put on a still greater pace, and turning the corner without looking, ran into a little party of three, which was coming in the opposite direction. Fate's vein of irony was by no means worked out yet. As he was recovering from the collision, and preparing to offer or accept an apology as the case might be, he discovered to his horror that he had fallen amongst no strangers. The three were his old acquaintances, Coker, Coggs, and the virtuous Chawner, of whom he had fondly hoped to have seen the last for ever. The moral and physical shock of such an encounter took all Mr. Bulditude's remaining breath away. He stood panting under the sickly rays of a street lamp, the very incarnation of helpless, hopeless dismay. Hello, said Coker. It's young Bultitude. What do you mean by cannoning into a fellow like this, said Coggs? What are you up to out here, eh? If it comes to that, said Paul, casting about for some explanation of his appearance, what are you up to here? Why, said Chawner, if you want to know, Dick, we've been to fetch the St. James Gazette for the doctor. He said I might go if I liked, and I asked for Coker and Coggs to come too, because there was something I wanted to tell them, very important, and I have told them, haven't I, Corny? Coggs growled sulkily. Coker gave a tragic groan and said, I don't care when you tell, Chawner. Do it tonight if you like. Let's talk about something else. Bultitude hasn't told us yet how he came out here after us. His last words suggested a pretext to Paul, of which he hastened to make use. Oh, he said, I? I came out here after you, to say that Dr. Grimstone will not require the St. James Gazette. He wants the globe and uh, the star instead. It did not sound a very probable combination, but Paul used the first names that occurred to him and as it happened aroused no suspicions, for the boys read no newspapers. "'Well, we've got the other now,' said Coker. "'We shall have to go back and get the fellow at the bookstall to change it, I suppose. Come on, you fellows.' This was at least a move in the right direction, for the three began at once to retrace their steps. But, unfortunately, all these explanations had taken time, and before they had gone many yards, Mr. Bultitude was horrified to hear the station bell ring loudly, and immediately after a cloud of white steam rose above the station roof as the London train clanked cumbrously in, and was brought to with a prolonged screeching of brakes. The others were walking very slowly. At the present pace it would be almost impossible to reach the train in time. He looked round at them anxiously. Uh, "'Hadn't we better run, don't you think?' he asked. "'Run!' said Coker scornfully. "'What for? I'm not going to run. You can, if you like.' "'Why, uh, really,' said Paul briskly, very grateful for the permission. "'Do you know? I think I will.' And run he did, with all his might, rushing headlong through the gates, threading his way between the omnibuses and under the Roman noses of the mild fly-horses in the enclosure until at length 
he found himself inside the little booking office. He was not too late. The train was still at the platform, the engine getting up steam with a dull roar. But he dared not risk detection by traveling without a ticket. There was time for that, too. No one was at the pigeonhole but one old lady. But, unhappily, the old lady considered taking a ticket as a solemn rite to be performed with all due caution and deliberation. She had already catechized the clerk upon the number of stoppages during her proposed journey, and exacted earnest assurances from him that she would not be called upon to change anywhere in the course of it. And as Paul came up, she was laying out the purchase money for her ticket upon the ledge and counting it, which the fare being high, and the coins mostly halfpence, seemed likely to take some time. "'One moment, man, if you please,' cried Mr. Bultitude, panting and desperate. "'I'm pressed for time.' "'Now you've gone and put me out, little boy,' said the old lady fussily. "'I shall have to begin all over again. Young man, will you take and count the other end, and see if it adds upright? There's a halfpenny wrong somewhere.' I know there is. Now then, shouted the guard from the platform. Any more going on? I'm going on, said Paul. Wait for me. First single to St. Pancras. Quick. Drat the boy, said the old lady angrily. Do you think the world's to give way for you? Such impotence. Mind your manners, little boy, can't you? You've made me drop a threepenny bit with your scrounging. First single, five shillings, said the clerk, jerking out the precious ticket. Right, cried the guard at the same instant. Stand back there, will you? Paul dashed toward the door of the booking office, which led to the platform. But just as he reached it, a gate slammed in his face with a sharp click. Through the bars of it he saw, with hot eyes, the tall, heavy carriages which had shelter and safety in them jolt heavily past, till even the red lamp on the last van was quenched in the darkness. That miserable old woman had shattered his hopes at the very moment of their fulfillment. It was fate again. As he stood, fiercely gripping the bars of the gate, he heard Cog's hateful voice again. Hello, so you haven't got the globe and the other thing after all, then. They've shut you out? Yes, said Mr. Bultitude, in a hollow voice. They've shut me out. End of section 16 Recording by Mike Ockenick